0: Hey, guys. How are you? I'm well, Chris. How are you?
1: Excellent. Thank you.
0: Hi, really Chris. Looking- how are you
1: doing? Good to hear from you.
0: Good stuff. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. You're possibly the most um, interesting person I would have spoke to for a long time in terms of what you do. So I've got loads of questions for you. I know Shahom sure. has as well. But for, for those... of Those in the the chat and the the viewers who are probably not, who may not be aware of your work, rather maybe just uh, you can summarize what it is you can do the best way you can actually.
1: Sure. Well, I've been an investigative reporter, television reporter in the U.S. uh, for 40 years, and been around the world doing various stories for Dateline, for Killer Instinct. uh, Probably the most iconic or best known is to catch a predator and take down with Chris Hansen, Predator Investigations, which are now going into their 18th year, believe it or not, where we work undercover now with law enforcement across the country, and, and we catch men who approach children online for a sexual liaison. And there's a chat online. The predator always makes the first move, and they show up to meet the child. And instead of meeting a child, they meet me, and they have to be interviewed by me, and then they're arrested by police, and we follow the prosecutions uh, throughout the criminal justice system here in the United States. And, And to be honest with you, I only thought that this would go on for, you know, a few episodes in the very beginning, that people would wise up and not show up. But the demand, the nature of the predatory mind, and the fact that there has been an explosion in the number of social media platforms upon which an adult can reach out to a minor in inappropriate way um, has made this a continuing series, but also something that's very important to continue the dialogue and to continue creating the awareness so that parents can have a discussion with their children
2: and better protect them online. I have to say, Chris, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, To Catch a Predator, and I've seen loads of the episodes on YouTube. And my favorite bit, and I imagine probably the favorite bit for a lot of your viewers, mm-hmm. is the second you walk in and you see them squirm. So you see them live trying to make an excuse and it's just such a terrible excuse. It's usually, you know, I, well, I didn't what know you, that they were what you're
1: watching boy. is the commission of a felony in real time. And then the collision between that alleged predator and and justice. I mean, we did another, you know, we, we've got this new uh, crime streaming network called True Blue. And uh, as part of that, we're doing new predator investigations. I was out less than a week ago, less than a week ago. And the first two guys to come in the door both knew exactly who I was, suspected that it was an investigation involving me, but showed up anyway. I mean, the first guy walks in and the first two words out of his mouth are my name. The second guy, we go at it for about 30 minutes, and he's got his excuses, as you've heard so many times on the investigations. And uh, it comes to that point where I say, there's something you need to know. And he steals my line. He says, you're Chris Hansen. I said, well, how did you know that? He said, well, I'm 49 years old. I watch television. Everybody knows that. I said, well, help me to understand what was going on in your mind that that made you show up and risk everything to potentially have sex with a teenage girl. And and they never have a great answer. You know, uh, sometimes they'll break down and sometimes they'll get into the, 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 weeds on these issues and, and talk about you know what caused them to be this way whether they're being 100 percent truthful or not i don't know but i think sometimes they try and i think you know anybody can jump out of uh, the bushes or out from behind a curtain and create you know 10 seconds of dramatic video what i try to do is engage them in a conversation so that we can better understand the mind of a predator And and i think you know whether we understand how they lie or how they obfuscate or how they You know sort of justify their actions how they spin their excuses they've had time to do this all the way through the chat and up until the meeting it's it's important and it's it's very good information for parents and and for all of us to have
0: yeah i mean i mean i suppose the great thing is that you're preventing a lot of this before it does progress into uh, you know some more serious legal activity but also on the you know the negative side of things it's you're not actually short of work in this area either. So, I mean, it how prevalent is this in terms of predators seeking out underage people and, and attempting these kind of meetups? Do you think is there any data we can look at? Or you it's, know, have you got it's any really real hard to about?
1: quantify because of the, mm. the vast ubiquitous nature of the internet, there's no way to monitor it uh, and to say, okay, there are X number of predators online at any given time. And you know, it used to be in the early. Uh, investigations. we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. <clears throat> so you could more closely modify it and uh, monitor it. And now there are so many platforms, it's hard to even keep up with what they are, much less what's mm. going on on the platform. Uh, I can tell you that during the peak of the pandemic, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, reported And they have mandatory reporting mandated by the U.S. government from social media platforms who have to tell NCMEC when they get a report of an inappropriate contact between an adult and a child or inappropriate material is transmitted between an adult and a child. They have to report that. And at the peak of the pandemic, those reports soared some 900%. More kids online, more potential predators aware of that. Again, I think that the, the activity is more prevalent than ever because there is more opportunity than ever. Uh, it's more diffuse. It's harder to find. For every one predator we catch, we don't know how many others are out there operating. But the number has got to be exponential based upon our experience and based upon the fact that, you know, demand reduction uh, doesn't work like it does in the um, drug world uh, for this crime. And so the best defense is the preparation that you give your children that you the information wall that you can surround them with from a very early age, from the very time they go on the Internet to make them aware. And I think by exposing these guys, I think there's a deterrent effect. But again, as I mentioned, you know, 18 years ago, I thought we'd do it once or twice and that'd be it. But here we are
2: still doing it and guys are still showing up. So I've got a question for you, Chris. Apologies, it's a bit of an an uncomfortable question. So the the context of this is: so I'm a a forensic psychiatrist, and I rehabilitate people who have offended with mental illness. And only a very small proportion of them are sex offenders, and it's usually because they've got a mental illness that's that's caused that. So, for example, they're really disinhibited if they suffer from bipolar. But my uh, I often get asked, can sex offenders be rehabilitated. And I suppose it's relatively easy for my clientele, because as I say, they've got a treatable mental illness, but for the people that you see, the vast majority, aside from the actual pedophilia, uh, they, they don't have you know a treatable mental illness that you can reverse with medication. So my question for you is, do you think most of these men can be rehabilitated? And if so, what does that look like?
1: I think that some can, and again, you're the psychiatrist. I just you know have a little bit of experience talking to these guys in in these investigations. But in my experience, and again, this is not clinical or scientific, but in my experience, these guys break down into three different categories, the guys who show up in our investigations. There are the hardcore heavy hitters who would be doing this with or without the internet. They'd be the bad little league coach or um, the bad, scoutmaster, the guy hanging out at the food court at the mall or the movie theater looking to prey upon children. They're hardwired this way. There's another group of younger guys who are socially inept, who say things online they wouldn't say face to face. They find a willing partner who is, in their mind, uh, allowing them to have a sexual conversation. It leads to what is hope for a, a meeting. And they look at this as a Romeo Juliet situation. The guy's 21, the girl's 14. One day it'll be legal. She said yes. And they justify it in their mind. Those guys if caught early. They can be put into intensive counseling, I think. They can be monitored. And they probably will not reoffend. in my experience. Then there's this interesting category in the middle the everyday guy, a professional, uh, a doctor, a lawyer, even a law enforcement officer we've seen, and they have this fantasy, this this predisposition about having sex with an underage boy or girl, and they wouldn't normally do anything about it without the internet. And then they get going in these chats, and oftentimes they consume, you know, pornography uh, that involves uh, kids who are underage. And they, they get going and they get caught up in the addictive nature of the internet, the access 24-7, and the anonymity, again, where they say things they wouldn't say face-to-face. And suddenly you see them cross this line between fantasy and reality, and they're knocking on our door. And that's the more complex individual to treat. Some of these guys get scared straight, but I've seen cases. We caught a clergyman, a rabbi, for instance. We caught a the medical doctor. And these guys sometimes stray back into this activity, communicating online with, with underage boys or girls. And it's it's hard to understand, but they think they're better than everybody else, I suppose. They think they can get away with it. And, and so they continue this activity. And that's the more difficult uh, segment of the population to treat because you don't know necessarily, or I don't know how to fix them. The incorrigibles lock them up forever. The, Young guys, treat them, put them in intensive counseling. The guys in between, they're more difficult. And, and the reality is in our society, we want easy answers. We want the treatment that works. We want the medicine that works. We want the incarceration that works. And each one of these guys is complex and different and shows up in these sting operations for a multitude of different reasons. And you know, we don't have the ability to treat everyone but we do have the ability to incarcerate them. So that's often what happens.
0: Do you ever fear for your own safety? I mean, I've watched a a number of these encounters now and what strikes me from the ones I've seen is when you approach these people and confront them, they are willing to engage in dialogue with you afterwards. And I I would have thought the instinct would be to bolt out of the location at the, the earliest possibility.
1: You know, the interesting thing is, and that still happens by the way, Guys will walk in, get spooked, and, <clears throat> and they'll run. And because we collaborate with law enforcement, the law enforcement will then step in and, and apprehend them, and I'll get a second chance to talk to them should they be willing to talk. But more often than not, what we're seeing now, and we've done a number of investigations in the last few months for True Blue, what I see is a guy saying in the chat, is this a Chris Hansen deal? And the decoy will say, who's that? And he'll explain it. And then well, I don't know who that is. And the guy shows up. In the early days of the investigations, if a guy would recognize me, most times they would bolt. Now, it's almost like they stay and talk because in their mind, they've seen the investigations. And this is the part where I'm supposed to talk to Chris Hansen. It's very odd. and and, and But it happens with, with great frequency. And it's happening in the new investigations. And is there a bit of a fanboy thing going on? I think there was in in, in Polk County, Florida, in a recent case we did. Um, do they feel trapped in that this is their best chance at explaining their way out of something where they're going to be on TV, whether they want to or not? Maybe. Um, it's 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 really you know covering a lot of different stories over four decades. It really is the one that really still perplexes me. You know, As to why these guys do this and why they stay and talk. And, and again, I suppose it's a little bit of my attitude about not jumping out of the bushes to scare them. I, I want to talk to them. And again, some don't. Some try to run. But the vast majority do stay and at least talk to some extent.
2: And of all the cases you've seen, who do you think has had the most to lose? I mean, you mentioned a doctor before, and I've seen that episode. That's that's definitely cringy listening to him phone his wife. Would it be him or anybody else you can think of who's just, well, just, I think just he's, lost everything? You know, you're, you're talking about Dr. Maurice Wallen, who sadly passed
1: away in the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, there's a lot to lose there. Here's a guy who is with a company on the West Coast on the cutting age of cancer, cutting edge of cancer treatment, a medical doctor, highly educated, married to a woman who's a medical doctor, highly educated and successful, has daughters, and he's screwing around on a Saturday chatting with not one but two different teenage girls, one of whom he comes to meet. It's a decoy, but he thinks it's a real girl. And he's going to hang out in tall, dreamy dock, His screen name is without a doubt going to try to have sex with this girl. And it all comes crashing down in the backyard of a home in Petaluma, California, when he sees me, tries to bolt, and he's detained by the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department. And and there's a guy with a ton to lose. And, and, you know, you, you feel bad for these guys. And people say, well, it really wasn't a girl there. It was a sting operation. But what if we weren't there? And what if the girl was available? What do you think would have happened? Well, there would have been the rape of a child. And you probably know this, being a psychiatrist and, and dealing with some of these people, they all say that it's their first time. And psychiatrists who spend time in federal prisons talking to sex offenders will tell you two things. If they've been caught once, they've done it two or three or four other times. And two, that there's a definite link between the viewing of child pornography and offending. And those things are just known quantities based upon medical doctors who go into prison and do this very difficult, uh, very depressing, I would think, uh, practice of medicine.
0: I want to just focus on the internet for a second, because you mentioned it earlier about safeguarding children in terms of what they can access on the internet, or rather who can access them, I suppose, is the issue. Uh, But also, as well, the internet's provided a lot of people who would normally just be opportunists or oddballs or village outcasts to actually come together and create little communities and quiet sure. pockets where they can exchange information and actually be informed as the best way to be a predator in certain situations. So what's the impact of the internet had on the safeguarding of children in that respect?
1: Well, I, I think it, it's all about the internet. If you talk to the FBI about the North American Man-Boy Love Association, um, that group had pretty much been put out of business because they had to advertise in different newspapers and, and, and places and they had to send mailers out and they had to have secret meetings. Well, they, they put them out of business. Then the internet came and now they have the unlimited ability to communicate. They can use all kinds of nefarious ways to covertly communicate, share information. And, and so it's, it's very difficult to monitor. And so these guys are able to flourish on the internet. And we're not talking about the dark web for this sort of activity. Yes, there's human trafficking that goes on there, but we're talking about regular mainstream platforms which kids can access. Um, And and so it's very frustrating for law enforcement to crack down on this. And one of the few ways you can do it is with a sting operation like
2: the ones we do. Chris, do you ever think that some of the perpetrators themselves are potentially quite vulnerable? So, for example, do you see people who you think might have like a learning disability? And even though they know what they're doing is wrong, they might not quite understand sort of social uh, norm- normalities and the social structure. So because of that, they might have been in a situation uh, more vu- which makes them more vulnerable than the typical average person.
1: We've seen that. We in one of the early investigations, a fellow showed up, and, and uh, he clearly wasn't uh, intellectually a hundred percent. And I could see as he came in, he had a scar on the side of his head indicating some sort of trauma or injury or surgery. And he wasn't very articulate, and he was more consumed with using the bathroom. and And he was arrested, and he was shown in that that early investigation, but not to a great extent. But then. Just a matter of weeks later, that very investigation was in Riverside County, California. Several weeks later, we were in Long Beach, California. Um, And lo and behold, the same guy surfaces. And he says in the chat that he can't show up on a Friday because he's got a court date. Well, the court date was from the earlier arrest in Riverside. We do some further digging and find out that he had spent a year in county jail for a violent assault. And then he walks into our house in Long Beach to meet a child, to meet a girl. So yeah, does this guy have a disability? He sure does, uh, but that doesn't make him any less dangerous to a child. What he was capable of doing to a child in that case um, was devastating yeah. and potentially violent above the violence of a, of a sexual assault, which is horrifying in and of itself. So what do you do? Does that guy deserve special treatment? Does he deserve uh, a different care in the criminal justice system? Yes, probably. But he's no less worthy of being exposed as somebody who could have harmed a child. I mean, we have the same discussion all the time. You know, should a 19, 20, or 21-year-old be treated differently than a 30, 31, or 39-year-old? And in a way, yes. you know, but we're not talking about a Romeo-Juliet situation here with a 21-year-old and a 14-year-old decoy. We're talking about an adult wishing to harm a child. And what's the difference between a 21-year-old committing this crime and a 39-year-old? The danger to the child is the same.
0: When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand, focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients, to cooking essentials, and of course, the snacks. Look what's in this gym. It's the vegan power mix from Coro. So we have a mixture of nut canals, dried fruit, Ko nibs, soy crispies, and hemp seed. Hold. What are these little red ones?
1: Look at this. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Mmm, mmm. That's good.
0: Fresh and healthy.
2: Problem is when you buy these things online, everyone's going to be fresh enough.
0: This is high quality stuff. So, what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro's quality management team carefully and regularly reviews the quality of their products. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor.
1: Now, the criminal justice system should probably treat him differently if he's a first-time offender, if he's young, if he's got a chance to... You know, have some counseling, sort himself out and not re-offend. Yes, absolutely, he should be treated differently than somebody who's offended in the past, who's older, who's had more contacts with the criminal justice system. Yes, absolutely, there should be a difference in treatment there. And generally, that's what happens.
0: Just to uh, follow up on this idea of decoys, because for those of you who are watching, you might not be aware, uh, this uh, you know, quote-unquote predator will turn up under the assumption he's meeting a minor for um, a sexual encounter. When he arrives, who he'll actually be met with is usually an adult actor posing as the decoy, the the minor, the 13-year-old, etc. Now, it can be a bit uncomfortable because that person who's turned up is obviously turning up uh, with the intention of committing a crime. We don't know what else they're capable of or have done before, and they're suddenly put in a room uh, with this young Actress. Now, I, I, going through my mind, I'm, I'm kind of thinking what sort of protections are in place in case something goes south very quickly, because it can go south very quickly in these situations. Sure.
1: Well, as you mentioned, in some of the earlier investigations, we actually had an actress or an actor, a theater student who was of age but looked much younger. In the current investigations, to further safeguard everybody involved, we, um, have that decoy work done by somebody who works for law enforcement. So a sheriff's department or police department typically has people who look younger but are of age and they're trained in, in law enforcement work. So that's who does it in the current investigation. So there's another layer of, of protection there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, part of the reason that this is such an appealing franchise is that it is a little edgy. There is a certain inherent risk involved in it. And we try to safeguard that as much as possible. And I believe um, that, that, you know, for what we do, it's about as safe as an environment as it could possibly be. But yeah, it's, it's not, you know, you're not reading the nightly news. You're going out and, and, and uh, infiltrating a felony and covering it from the inside out. But that is what has made it so compelling.
2: I suppose there's always a a slight risk when you're working with, uh, you know, potentially very serious sex offenders. But you know,
1: here's something interesting. You know, all the years I've been doing this, I've been in Cambodia, where we went undercover to uh, expose uh, a brothel with six, seven, eight-year-old kids servicing Americans and Western Europeans. I've been in India uncovering uh, child slave labor, West Africa exposing scammers and and, uh, people dealing in blood diamonds to raise money for Al-Qaeda and all that. The times that I almost got my ass kicked were chasing a a bike thief who was dealing in stolen bicycles in in the village, Greenwich Village of New York City and at a mall in Connecticut doing a story on counterfeit cell phone products. So go figure.
2: I was just wondering how the general public react to you, Chris. So, firstly, do you get recognised uh, fairly often? Do people come up to you and uh, speak to you? Because I imagine it's a slightly uncomfortable and it's not exactly a topic that they might want to discuss out in the open. And also connected to that, do you ever get any sort of trolls or haters for any of your work?
1: Oh, we had we had haters. I mean, I'll get an email every once in a while, and you know, we do a podcast called Predators I've Caught, and, and we go back over the cases. Um, that we've investigated and we dig into it a little further and you know as you can imagine when we're doing the investigation we're a little bit on the fly now we have information on the suspect on the predator we have some background we have the chats generally but not always with enough time to immerse myself in it so the the podcast allows me to go back and live in the chats live in the video and find out what that person has done since their arrest and, and it's 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 fascinating and somewhat cathartic for me, and I think the audience enjoys it as well. But we get a lot of correspondence from not a lot, but we get some correspondence from people who don't like the franchise. And typically, I think that kind of correspondence comes from somebody who's been caught, or a relative or family member of of somebody who has been caught who doesn't believe they were capable of doing it, and they can they can be relatively vitriolic. Um, but that comes, with, that comes with the business. And some people you know, will, will say horrible things, but all of that is far overshadowed by the incidents when somebody comes up to me at a pub or a restaurant or walking down the street or at a subway who says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I say, yeah, of course. And they tell the story of how they were abused as a child, how they never felt they got justice and how they watched the show today, and have watched the show historically and feel that they are getting some justice by seeing these guys held accountable. And to me, that's really what matters most. You know, I I, look, I know we've been parodied on South Park and and (laughs) I've made cameo appearances on different shows, and there is a certain comedic element to this, dark comedy, albeit, but still, I understand that. And I don't mind any of that. And I don't mind being on South Park or The Simpsons or Family Guy because all it does at the end of the day is create more attention to a very important subject. So if people get a laugh out of it or because it's become ingrained in pop culture, I mean, we're into the third generation of followers now. And so you've got to harness that and use it for something positive, which is education, awareness, dialogue. And it also, quite honestly, opens a lot of doors to do a lot of different crime stories, whether they involve sextortion, which is such a critical topic and one that we're very deeply involved in as we speak, Um, scam artists, elderly people being victimized, you know, any sort of crime, it opens the door for me to be able to cover it more extensively and have more access for True Blue. And that's the advantage that we have on this new crime streaming network is, is that.
0: Home, I'm aware that you're not with us for the entire hour and knowing what an inquisitive individual you are. Have you got any further questions you want to get in as well?
2: <laughs> um, I, I suppose what's the weirdest excuse that you've ever had, Chris? I, I know they all seem to follow a certain pattern. They all say that they don't believe that, they, that the decoy was actually that age. Is there anyone that really sticks out that just doesn't make any sense? Oh God,
1: there's probably a hundred way tie for first, but um, you know, there's always the excuse that I was just here to have a good long talk with her to make sure she doesn't do this anymore. I was going to sit with her on the couch until her parents got home. I was going to try to explain the the error of her ways by communicating with grown men online. And we've had some real whoppers. We've had a guy who came in to say he was looking to buy the house. So where did you see it advertised? Well, I, I didn't. A friend told me, well, who's your friend? Um, he's so-and-so. Well, what's his number let's call him and ask him about it you know and we just kind of <laughs> peel away the onion on it and the issues has never never seemed to hold up i've never had a case and we're close to 500 guys now i've never had a case where somebody was just at the wrong place at the wrong time it just doesn't happen we know the computer we know the background we've run the number we know the phone it's virtually impossible to have somebody just stumble into this environment unknowingly we've had try we've had people try to suggest that but there are too many safeguards around it there's too much information that we know before the guy walks in we had a guy one time in florida and i started reading transcripts to him from his chat he said i would never say that i was at home at that time of day i was in my office uh, upstairs my wife and daughter were downstairs and i f- read further into the transcript i shouldn't be talking to you this way i'm up in my office at my house and my <laughs> wife and daughter are downstairs you know it's like
0: you know it's i, mean, it's, I just i just covered my face there because th- there is a massive cringe aspect to this. So what's going Murder. on here for me psychologically? Psychologically, maybe one of you both could tell me, given you you both experts on this. But for me, you mean you're catching a bad guy, you're preventing a horrendous crime, but I'm still like, oh god, I can't, I can't watch this. There's something about people being caught in the wrong in the full light of day, which well, I just it's, find it's, really it's uncomfortable. It's an
1: uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable moment, and so a lot of what happens during the interview, and I think a lot of why they talk is I try to remove. The discomfort. I mean, obviously, you want to apply pressure at the right time. But if I lean back and say, "Look, help me to understand what got you into this situation," we had a guy. He's up now. Uh, his nickname is the fanboy. He's one of the guys who surfaced in the Polk County, Florida, investigation, and he showed up to meet a 12-year-old girl and her mom. And the story is is lengthy and somewhat sorted, but he sits down for 30 minutes after his arrest and, and and lays out what led him to have this fetish this fantasy and uh, conduct himself in this predatory criminal fashion and you know uh, as a psychiatrist you know you'd be you'd be fascinated to hear this now you may call bullshit at the end of the day but he tells what appears to be an honest story of, you know, why he ended up in this situation. And it's it's just, it's fascinating. But it is cringy because the guy, the guy's caught, right? Yeah, And as he's trying to come up with his story, his explanation for me, he's also watching himself get into trouble. And in the early stages of the interview, they don't, think necessarily that they're on camera because the cameras are hidden for the initial part of it. And then when I introduce myself, the, the big cameras come out. And that's often when the, the look of shock washes across their face and um, you see, you know, the realization that somebody's just, you know, potentially blowing up their lives, yeah. blowing
2: up their relationships.
1: I mean, how do you explain that to your kids?
2: I suppose for for me, one thing that I think is unique about watching that that those thirty seconds or that minute is that we don't really get to see that in any other kind of platform. Like if you if you watch true crime, whether it's documentaries, uh, whether you know you read about certain offences in the newspapers, you know what happens, but you never get to see the criminal's reaction when they get caught. Well, and it, yeah, if yeah. they have any kind of excuse in court, then obviously that's practiced. It's it's pre-planned. They probably had some help from their legal team. Whereas what you do is you you catch them in that moment, and as you say, you can. In some of the cases, you can actually see their minds ticking, especially if they know you, because they're trying to calculate in their head how their lives have just crashed around them, whilst trying to come up with an excuse that's obviously complete bullshit uh, right. at the time. I mean, the mind can—you know—the mind can
1: only do so many things at the same time, and not everybody who comes in is a—you know—is a member of Mensa. You know, the varying degrees of of, of intelligence, and, and, and again, as you mentioned earlier, we have seen uh, very intelligent. Men walk into these sting operations. Um, and we've seen some are, you know, uh, a confluence of dunces that makes them no less dangerous, you know? So it, it, it's, it, we, we, we had a, we did one earlier this year where a, a cop, an active law enforcement officer showed up to meet a teenage boy. And not only was he a cop in a small size police department in mid-Michigan, He had been um, an educator, an administrator at several schools, and had been a juvenile probation officer. And here he is in our kitchen all snotty with me after being caught trying to, to meet a boy. And after the back and forth with him, and he was just arrogant and snotty, I said to the crew, I guarantee you that this guy is in a position of authority. He's either a cop, he's a local politician, he's an executive with a company nearby, but I guarantee you he's somebody. And sure enough, the Genesee County, Michigan Sheriff's Department searches his pickup truck, they find three guns, his police credentials, and a pair of handcuffs. And then, because even though we hadn't run the story yet, the arrest makes the news, obviously, and the sheriff holds a news conference, as as he should, and uh, you know, the, the potentially more victims out there. All these people start coming forward, including a town supervisor, who was his boss at one point, who had to fire him, and talked about the, him waging a campaign of harassment against her, uh, because she had to fire him for cause. And so, who knows what else is out there on this guy? But we know on that day, he showed up at a house, with a tube of lubricant in his pocket after a sexually charged conversation with somebody he thought was a 15-year-old boy with every intent of having sex with the kid. And then you go back over the phone and you see that there's child pornography on the phone. Well, then that becomes a federal investigation. But these cases often have long tentacles and uh, people come forward for, you know, months to come.
2: Um, My time is up. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Chris. Love your your, uh, show. And uh, best of luck in your next platform. Cheers. Thanks. Nice to see you. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers for co-hosting. Good to see you, Sean. Bye, guys.
0: See you soon. Very bright chap, Shahan. Yeah, sure. I've got so many questions to ask sure, you on Steve. this topic. So I suppose um, just for as a curiosity, I mean, we're both well aware that uh, crimes of this nature, sexual nature, exploitation, things like that are overwhelmingly almost exclusively a male problem. But just curiously, have you ever caught a woman, a predatory female who's also trying to groom in this way?
1: Never in our investigations, I, I wrote a book years ago about the whole predator experience, and there was a case where a woman had used the internet to, to prey upon a, uh, a young, a teenage boy, but in our investigations, never has a woman surfaced. And, and the experts tell us that it's basically because female predators are more likely to engage in the teacher-student scenario. They don't like the anonymity of the Internet when it comes to preying upon somebody who's younger than them. So you'll see the teacher student scenario, but you don't see as often the um, the meeting somebody online for the first time and, and then hooking up in person. Where the male predator gets off on the anonymity. They, they enjoy that, and that's part of the thrill for them.
0: Yeah, so one thing I, I've noticed in the number of um episodes where you've actually confronted the, um, you know, the potential uh, sex offender. And what strikes me is you're you're about to enter this room with somebody who's arrived there with all the intentions of committing a crime. Some might say one of the most serious crimes you can commit, really. That that kind of inspires a lot of emotion within people, this topic, for for good reason. But you somehow managed to stay calm in the face of that. I mean, firstly, I suppose my question is, have you always stayed calm? Have I missed... Uh, episodes where you completely <laughs> lost your top. Uh, and also, how do you prepare yourself to remain calm in, in that way?
1: Well, you, you know, you, you take a deep breath and, you know, you really, you only have one shot at it. So you have to stay composed. But, you know, in the, in, I remember, you know, clear as day, uh, the very first time we did this. And, you know, we didn't partner with law enforcement in the first two investigations. It was just us the online watchdog group perverted justice. um, The decoys were right in the house with us and I had security, you know, from the network. And at first I, you know, we didn't know if anybody was gonna show up. We didn't know whether we had just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money. We just were going to do it. And, you know, in two and a half days, 17 guys showed up. But the very first guy to walk in, yeah, my heart was in my throat and I wasn't quite sure how this was gonna go. I felt that you know, I, my security was protected through Ron Knight, my security guy, but, you know, I had the transcripts and and I just had to figure it out. I had done a lot of, you know, confrontational or spontaneous interviews in the past, but nothing like this. And so the very first one, I was just trying to get through it and stay focused. And, and I think what happens is there's so much going on, right? And as, as much security is around you, as much, law enforcement presence, you're still the first guy sometimes when these investigations go down. So you're watching their hands, you're watching their body movements, you're watching their eyes, you're trying to judge the behavior and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to initiate this interview and also protect yourself. God forbid if something goes sideways. So it's almost like you're too busy to overthink it and get too anxious so you just you get through it and and you try to as always and with any interview um you try to be a good listener and if you're too busy thinking about the next question then you're you're not going to be a good interviewer you have to live in the moment and just not be in a rush and sometimes we do have to hustle things along because we'll be 20 minutes into an interview with one predator and there'll be another guy on the way and this happened just last week you know we're talking to this guy and and uh, you know, I'm getting a signal from the crew saying there's another guy in the way, and so you don't want to cut him short because you want to get every moment you can, and you want to get as much out of the interview as possible. But you also don't want him being led away by uh, sheriff's deputies when the other guy shows up. You know, so it's 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 a bit of a it's it, a tricky tightrope act. But you know, for the most part, I, I think I get through it every once in a while. and, and I. I think about this when I do the podcast, because you've got time to let it all sink in and immerse yourself, as I mentioned earlier. And every once in a while, I'll think to myself, I should have asked that or I should have known that, or I wish I'd read, had time to read another page of the transcripts. But generally speaking, we don't leave anything in the locker room. I mean, we, we, we get just about everything we can
0: talking of spending time thinking about things and dwelling on it. It it's a very dark topic. And I I mean, for every prevention you are able to make there must be so many that you can't you can't be everywhere at once you can't catch everyone at once you know better than anyone this this goes on far more than people are aware how does that weigh on you just just mentally being being involved and engaged in the topic of child exploitation and se- sexual offense uh, and being put in a position where it's almost a responsibility of yours to try and prevent that it seems like a very difficult position to be in mentally
1: well i i think if you let it get to you, it, it can get to you. Yeah. If you if you go down a dark hole, you know, and, and dwell upon uh, the the just how vast the opportunity is to, to have adults pray on children. Yeah, you could go down that dark path. But what what really is rewarding to me has been the the, the public reaction around the world. Really, I mean. And, and when I get an email from somebody, and I read one on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, who says, this happened to me, and it wasn't until many years later that I had the courage to tell a therapist, and now I'm telling you, you're the second person I've told that this has happened, and that I get some sort of um, comfort out of seeing these guys face justice, that, that makes it all worthwhile to me. I mean, whether that happens once a year or once a week, it um, it happens in, with surprising frequency, but it really does make it all worthwhile to me. And and I think again, it's 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 like we say in the states, if you're from the Midwest, there's a five mile bridge called the Mackinac Bridge, and it's like painting the Mackinac Bridge. By the time you are finished, it's time to start again on the other side. And so that's kind of what it is with this this process. And I think with all crime reporting, it's it's not going away. So it's really about creating awareness. Um, and that's the best defense you can, you can provide to people. And I think that's what we do. And yes, there's entertainment value. Yes, there's a dark humorous element of it. Yes, there's a collision. There's the um, watching a felonious act being committed. I think that's all part of it. But at the end of the day, it is about education, awareness, and dialogue.
0: Yeah. and I mean, your bridge analogy just made me think of something. It is is a case of like whack-a-mole really with these. Yeah. Sort of no, it, it absolutely is because it's
1: so vast.
0: Hmm.
1: Every week I find out about a new social media platform that I wasn't aware of. And that's another place <clears throat> where adults can approach children. So whether it's interactive gaming, whether it's um, a, a platform that's meant only for adults to chat, children will get on that they will lie and say they're 18 or 19 but they're not and they routinely get on that and the predators know that and when i was growing up the rule was don't talk to strangers good advice then good advice today the problem of course is that the stranger on a wednesday is so adept at grooming your child that they don't appear to be a stranger by friday when they're setting up an appointment to meet the child And I see this when I go back over the transcripts, and it's almost like these guys go to some website or school or class to learn how to groom the kids because it follows a distinct template, you know, where they break down the traditional barriers in society between adults and children. You're pretty. How old are you? 13. Wow. You probably have no interest in a 32-year-old man like me. Well, I'm not a baby. Oh. You mean you'd like to go out? And then it starts there. And then they, you know, they start to, to try to create this, this bond, this connection. And uh, it, it, it follows a surprisingly similar template. And it works in real life, especially if you're talking about a child who's in a vulnerable setting, you know, a, a single parent home where the parent is working or there's a, a lot of time alone for the child. It's, it's, they'll, they'll sniff that out, these predators, and they'll, they'll work that to their advantage.
0: Yeah, I was just speaking to my partner before this discussion, and she was she was kind of saying she can't understand why men would prey on underage uh, girls or you know children as they are. Now I, I kind of thought, well, I suppose it's because of the impressionable impressionable nature, the suggestibility. There is a there is a, a power dynamic there that doesn't always exist between adults. So do you think that explains some of
1: it? Well, I think it does, and I think a normal adult wouldn't do it. A normal adult would, you know see fit to protect a child under any circumstances. Most of us don't even think that way. And this is not, you know, a 30-year-old dating a 20-year-old. This is very clearly uh, an adult preying upon a child who has not reached the age of consent. And, and so there's, there's no real gray area here in the vast yeah. majority of these cases.
0: I well suppose my next question would be, how are we quantifying this as a phenomenon? Because I, I, to get a sense of it, is this a case of these kind of predators that you describe have always been around in some guise or some form and now they just have this amazing tool for which to, to sort of see, you know, seek these people out, which is the Internet? Or is this something more deeper happening culturally and societal wise that is creating more people of, of this nature?
1: Well, I think it's both. I think there's a certain population who's always been this way who now can exploit the internet to fulfill their criminal fantasies. But I also think that the internet and the accessibility of child pornography and other material has taken men who are in this middle area um, to over fantasize and, cross this line between fantasy and reality and act out. And that's equally as dangerous uh, as a, a, a true pedophile predator, you know, somebody who's wired this way. Um, so I think it's a combination. You know, and again, I go back to what I said earlier. We want in our society easy answers and easy explanations and one-shot solutions. And that's just not how this works. Um, And and there is definitely a lack of treatment options. There's some some psychiatrists and and therapists who are doing some very important work in this field. And I've had um, the opportunity to meet and chat with uh, a lot of them. And they're very dedicated and they make a difference. But if you look at spending $200,000 for a medical degree, and you have the opportunity to go down the street on Park Avenue and be a plastic surgeon or go into federal prisons and spend your time with incorrigible sex predators, what choice are you going to make? You know, fewer people, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, thank God there are people, men and women, who make the decision to deal with the incorrigibles and to deal with people who are in borderline positions. Um, to 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 help them and to help understand to help us understand as a society what the balance is between treatment and incarceration and monitoring um, to protect our kids. And there's no easy answer here. I mean, it's it's you know I can expose these guys uh, all day long, and until we come up with a solution for preventing it, I mean clearly deterrence isn't working across the board. I th- I think the show and the investigations have deterred a lot of people from going down that path. There's no question. But yet we continue to see guys in virtually every investigation.
0: Yeah, I mean, you made a great point earlier about the, the, these new social networks popping up all the time. And it's difficult to keep uh, abreast of what's new. And I, I'm the same, I've, I've reached my limit with social networks and I refuse to learn anymore. Uh, my 14 uh, year old niece had to show me how to use Instagram a couple of weeks ago. And what fascinated me about it is she knew it inside out to a level I have no comprehension of. So I suppose a lot of parents listening to this and watching this will be wondering what kind of safeguarding practices can they put in place to make sure the internet time that their minors, their kids, their loved ones are having is used in a responsible way and they're not prone to being lured in by these people who are obviously out to, to seek minors.
1: Well, I, I think it's a matter of, of, of keeping an eye on what your kids are doing. And, and I also think that it's starting at a very early age with an age-appropriate discussion about, you know, being online, being ex- exposed to strangers. Um, there are adults out there who want to trick kids. Kids don't like to be tricked. And then I think it's really a matter of driving this point home that if you don't know somebody in real life, you don't know them on the Internet. The young man who shows you a cute picture of a 15-year-old surfer dude in San Diego could be a fat 54-year-old sitting in his mother's basement in his underwear surrounded by empty pizza boxes and a laptop. And those are the sort of things that get kids' attention. I mean, you talk about Instagram, which we think is a relatively harmless way of communicating and sharing pictures and sharing you know, your experiences from, you know, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas to, uh, you know, a grandchild is born or, you know, I got a new car or whatever it is. We have a case that we're going to premiere on True Blue in the next couple days where a 12-year-old girl was on Instagram and was targeted by a predator in Florida. The girl was in Michigan and he convinced her to crawl out of her bedroom window and meet him in a church parking lot. He flew up from Florida, rented a car, took her to a hotel, sexually assaulted her. A day or two later, she shows up at the hospital emergency room. The nurses, thankfully, were trained to report this, and she was savagely injured by this guy. The investigators with the Genesee County Sheriff's Office were able to trace this back, get the surveillance, the security video at the hotel, go back and trace the rental car, And trace this guy back to Florida. They go down there and they arrest him. And we've got all the video, the whole thing. We've got the interrogation with the detectives, everything. And they charge him with this crime, this heinous crime. And during the course of the investigation, they find out that he's uh, been involved in two other similar cases in other states. And this is Instagram, Hmm. right? Which we think is, you know, a playground. It's very safe. This isn't some. You know, daddy-daughter chat room or something. It's 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 Instagram, but it could happen there. It can happen on Facebook. It can happen on any of these social media platforms. It can happen on any gaming platform when there's live interaction. You know, there've been cases,
2: <clears throat>
1: you know, uh, across the pond in different countries. And and the other thing that really disturbs me now, and we're way deep into this as I mentioned earlier, is these uh, this sextortion. You've got West Africa crime networks cajoling kids, boys and girls, into showing racy pictures and videos of themselves, and then taking that video, threatening them to expose them in front of their friends and family if they don't pay them $100, $200, $300. And you've got really good kids are so embarrassed and so ashamed that they're committing suicide before they'll actually have this discussion with their parents because they're good students they're good athletes and they're just shamed to death on this thing and it's outrageous And it's all about you know some guy in d'Ivoire or you know benin or 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 lagos nigeria who's extorting money from somebody he doesn't even know and so It, it's really, it's really shocking, and there are domestic cases of this too. And there, there are culprits who are known to the victims as well. But it's, 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 it's just there's so much out there to be aware of now. It's, sometimes it, it can be overwhelming, you know, especially as we try to put all these stories out on True Blue. But it's important for people to have this information, and we're going to keep putting it out there uh, so people can be aware
0: we talk about people having access because of the internet now you know sex offenders but is there something to be said about maybe the young teenage girl experience now has been made far more difficult by the internet you know they've always they've always been like in and out groups at school and societal societal pressure that seems somewhat somewhat exacerbated when you throw the uh, social media into the mix and all your friends are on there and then you've got this idealized, uh, you know, standard of beauty and expectations, how you should behave, how you should look, and girls are meant to feel less than worthy or ugly or things like that. Then you have some opportunist who's kind of swipes in. And like you say, one of the opening things to break down barriers is to tell them how beautiful they are, how pretty they are. Is, is this all connected in some way? I
1: think it's totally connected. I think it's connected in the cases that we've been talking about. I think there's, there's a huge problem with bullying, you know, and, and bullying isn't just You know, who hears it on the schoolyard? Bullying now is on a global level. You know, if you embarrass somebody online, they're embarrassed in front of the entire world. their friends. and, and, And you can't put it back in the bottle. You can't call them into the principal's office and say apologize and move forward. This is out there and it's out there forever. And that's one of the devastating things about this extortion is, the realization on the part of the victim that this material has been given away and it's out there forever and could surface at any time. So how do we hold the social media platforms accountable to detect this sort of thing? And I think there's a culpability, you know, from that standpoint. And how do we educate kids? And how, what do parents say to say, look, you know, if you screw up and if you do something, You know, come to me first. I mean, we interviewed the the parents of this 17-year-old in Ohio who had taken his own life, track star, good student, their only child. And their message, and you'll see it on True Blue very soon, is that, you know, kids have to just be kids. And when they do mess up, and it leads to something that they think is a life-ending experience, it's really not, number one. It's a mild embarrassment, but we'll get through it. But don't don't feel that you have to be so perfect and, and that there's no road back and that you can't, you know, fix it. Nothing is worth taking your own life over, you know?
0: Yeah. A lot of things feel like the end of the world when you're in that very delicate sure. area Absolutely. of teenagers, and,
1: don't and they? They always do, they, the teenagers especially. I mean, everything's, everything's you know, dramatic and times by a thousand because of the internet and everybody knows and, you know, you see it with college kids too and you see it in, with young adults, you see it with grown adults. I mean, one all it takes is one troll and, and you can be, you know, the, the, the target of all kinds of attacks on Twitter or any other social media platform. It's, it's, it's insane and then you get this mob mentality. It's, it can be harmful if it's not kept in perspective.
0: Yeah, I think there's also something psychological about doesn't matter about how many nice comments you receive or how many how many compliments you receive, you'll always fixate and focus on that, that one negative, nasty troll that's got something horrible to say.
1: And God forbid you answer it because all you're doing is giving that troll um uh, some credibility. And that emboldens them and that gives them, you know, a meaning in their own mind that oh, I was recognized. I, I pushed the button. Let's push the next button. I mean, it's just like, you know, parents said, smart parents said, when I was a kid, it's the best way to deal with a bully is to ignore them.
0: Yeah, that is that is the kryptonite for bullies for sure. So it's something you said earlier, which made me, um, this is very tangential, but I suppose this this idea that people are recognizing you now and there's almost a celebrity aura around what you do, and that's that's on some level, almost annoying, isn't it? Because really what you want to be doing is to be acting as a deterrent and not necessarily wanting people to be kind of excited to be in your grasp, and I suppose there's, there's always that strange, strange philosophy within Batman. I always like to bring it back to Batman, where I can, Chris, where there's this idea that the presence of Batman is actually, you know, behaving as some sort of magnet towards villains. Do you ever, do you ever feel that a little bit that maybe people are looking for notoriety and might? might I don't know about.
1: That. I know where you're going with it, and and I think there's there's some validity to it, and, and I wonder the same thing sometimes, but I don't. I don't think anybody would want to put themselves through that just to be, you know, notorious for being on one of my investigations. I I, maybe, um, and again, I've wondered it on a couple of occasions, especially in this recent investigation in Florida where this guy walked in and, you know, he didn't want to talk to the cops, to the sheriff's department detectives, but he sure gave it up to me. And um, I mean, maybe, I mean, I've had guys walk in, you know, even years ago, uh, saying that they've seen the shows. I had a guy recently right at the Michigan-Ohio border talk about him watching me on other podcasts. Um, I suppose it's possible, but I, I just, I don't think the vast majority of people would want to put themselves through it. That's not the way to be famous, to be on no. my shows.
0: Would definitely be an outlier if that was the case. But Chris, I've yeah. I really enjoyed speaking to, you. and I, I really well, appreciate for it. having me. I
1: appreciate it, Stephen. Have a wonderful holiday, and and thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: You too, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Take care.